Thank you, Dela. Thank you, musical team. My goodness, thank you, Bethel Church. You sing good. My grammar's bad, but your singing is good. Good, good, good. What a blessing to hear you. Something we look forward to all week long. Thanks again. So you believe dreams mean anything? I had a dream. Maybe you can help me out. I had a dream last night. It felt like it lasted all night. I'm driving my old Jeep, and I'm Uber driver. And I have a bunch of books in there in my Jeep. And people are crowding in, and they're upset with me because my books are in their way. It just went on all night long. Now, I think I know what it means. Honey, I need more room for my books. Okay? So I know what you're thinking. You think, I hope he's better at interpreting Revelation than he is at interpreting his dreams. <laughs> when I came here, I put a big bunch of my books back in the choir room. And it's still there. And, and I have books other places too. We, we're going to look at Revelation 20 today in the, the text that we just read, verses 7 through 15. It's a pretty serious uh, text of the Bible, but it answers a longing in every human heart, a craving in every human heart. Every human heart craves justice. And that's the title of my message today. Every human heart craves justice. And now we're coming to the end of the, the, the book that is the Bible. The end of the wrap-up of the Bible story. And we're going to see here that God is going to fully and finally bring justice to heaven and to earth. I heard a story this week from a, a young man named Brian Stevenson. He grew up in Georgia in poverty, and he had a little church that he attended, a Methodist African Episcopal church in a little town in Georgia, and he went to a colored school. His mother and his father were devout believers, and they saved up enough money for him to take a trip with the church, she and his sister, to take a trip on a church bus to Disney World when it first opened. And they were excited about Disney World, but they were especially excited about the fact that they were going to spend the night in the pool, uh, the night in a hotel, and that the, the hotel had a swimming pool. And he and his sister had never enjoyed a real swimming pool before. And so it's all they talked about for weeks leading up to when they were going to go down here on this trip, and the church bus was going to take him down there. And they got off the church bus, and they just darted from the swimming pool. And his sister literally was screaming, he said. His sister was screaming with delight as they plunged into the swimming pool. And the swimming pool was every bit as glorious as they knew it would be. But he said something really odd started happening. People started getting out of the swimming pool really fast. Parents were coming, pulling their kids out of the swimming pool one after another until the swimming pool was almost empty. There was only one other little boy in the pool. His dad came along and he snatched him out of the pool and he glowered at this little boy, Brian. Brian said, what's wrong? And he said, you're wrong, nigger. Brian Stevenson said he and his sister went over to the corner of the pool and held hands. And he said he fought back tears, feeling like he didn't belong in the pool. His mom came along and said, you belong in this pool. 
Brian grew up uh, and went to a, a Baptist college in Pennsylvania and then to law school at Yale, and he became an attorney. And he started an organization that would bring equal justice to people, no matter how poor they were, no matter how wealthy they were, no matter what color they were. Brian Stevenson is his name. He had from his youngest years just this great human longing for justice. He's actually argued a number of times in the Supreme Court of the United States. And he says every time he goes into the Supreme Court building, he stops and he looks at the, the architecture of the Supreme Court and he notices the words over the door of the Supreme Court of the United States are equal justice under the law. Equal justice under the law. And he's quoted as saying this, it's more dangerous to be poor and innocent in America than it is to be rich and guilty. That's what he thinks, because why? Because the human heart craves justice. When we're hurt by other people, or when people we love are hurt by other people, the human heart craves justice. And it is interesting that when we get to the end of this amazing book, the Bible, it ends with a clear, ringing, powerful statement of ultimate divine justice in heaven and on earth. That is what we're going to see today in this text. That's what we've read. The human heart craves justice. And God will fully and finally mete out justice one day. Now, now here we are at the text. We're looking at Re Revelation 20, verses 7 through uh, 15. And there are, there are two chunks here that are very obvious. They both end in a similar way. First, God says, I'm going to bring justice to the supernatural realm, to heaven. And I'm going to bring justice to the natural, to the human realm, to earth. In the first chunk of this, if you will, in verses 7 and through 10, he will fully and finally judge Satan and all demons, and that will be good. It's the end of all supernatural injustice. Now, if, if, let me review. Think about the book of Revelation. It's a revelation that was given to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos where he was incarcerated. And he had this vision of the risen Christ. This is a man who loved Jesus, saw him die, watched him be crucified, tortured, crucified, tried, tortured, crucified, buried, risen again, ascended to heaven, and he loved Jesus, and, and he saw him in post-resurrection appearance, and now on the Isle of Patmos, he has a vision, and this vision is in chapter 1. The first part of the vision is in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, John's vision is a series of letters to the churches that he was familiar with or that he had some dealings with, if you will. They were either churches that he started or churches that were started by the church he started. He was familiar with these churches. The seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation are in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 4 and 5, God gives John a vision of the throne room of heaven. And the, some of the most beautiful, the, one of the most beautiful parts of the Revelation is the, this, the vision that we have of the throne room of heaven, of the throne of God, of the, of the slain lamb in heaven, of the singing throngs and the angels that surround the throne. And that is in chapters 4 and 5. And then there's a long track of Revelation. That's Revelation 6 through 18 or 19. 
and it really does cover in detail a period of time yet future in the world that the Bible calls the tribulation, half of which is called the great tribulation. There's a description of a future time called the tribulation in chapters 6 through 19. And those of you who come here regularly know we spent one week per chapter in the tribulation. And now we just got out of the tribulation. You look very relieved having got out of the tribulation. And Jesus was returned in the story in chapter 19. But he's really returned first. He's going to bring heaven to earth, but first he's going to complete this work of justice. And it's pretty heavy. It's pretty sobering. But this is what we see in verses 7 through 10. He fully and finally judges Satan and all demons. Jesus returns to earth in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. He establishes a 1,000-year reign on earth. The millennial reign is mentioned six times in the first six verses of Revelation 20. We talked about that last week. He brings peace to the earth. Satan will be consigned or to the abyss during this time, a temporary hell, if you will. And then Satan will be released and he'll deceive the nations. That's in chapter 20 and verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison or from the abyss. Now, the beast and the false prophet went to the eternal lake of fire, didn't they? But Satan was in the temporary abyss, in the pit. And now he rebels in verse 7, the thousand years ends and Satan is released from his prison. And then Satan, they, they, Satan gets a, a following of people that were born to people that lived during the tribulation, still many willing to rebel against God, remarkably. And verse 8 says, they come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. This is verse 8. Gog and Magog, he uses a symbolic reference, probably not a literal reference, but a symbolic reference. It's like saying Waterloo all over again. Gog and Magog all over again. World War all over again. This is big. He gathers them to battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. So a huge group of people who, are, who were born to those that were the original inhabitants of the earth during the millennium, those that obviously didn't have glorified bodies, but were part of the millennial reign. They had, had children, and those children, many of them, rebel, are a part of this rebellion. And then verse 9 says, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire comes from heaven and consumes them. And then verse 10 says, the devil who had deceived them was now thrown in the lake of fire. That's the ultimate and eternal place of torment. Jesus talked about it. The scriptures are consistent about this. They, he were th the devil who deceived them, verse 10, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. You might ask, how long will that be? Will that immediately annihilate them? Well, it the beast and the false prophet are still there. They weren't annihilated in that 1,000 years they were suffering. Um, that would not be, that would be a false teaching, annihilation. Uh, I can, you can understand from our point of view, in terms of our fallen human sense of mercy, we might want to soften this, but this isn't our book. We didn't write this. God wrote this. And God has given humankind every imaginable opportunity to repent, uh, but they haven't. Verse 10 says, the devil 
who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. There's just no way to soften that. And so he'll, he, God is going to fully and finally judge Satan and demons. He's going to take care of all evil and injustice in heaven, if you will, in the heavens. Now the second chunk of this in verses 11 through 15 is that he'll fully and finally judge all sinful human rebellion and end all human injustice on earth. So he's going to end all evil and injustice in heaven and on earth. One day it comes to an end. This great longing of the human heart is fulfilled by God. And John saw what he calls a great white throne. Now this is interesting because the Bible talks about judgment a lot. It talks about judgments, periods of time, events of judgment often. The Bible talks about various resurrections that are often connected with judgments. Some are resurrected to be judged, if you will. And, and when you, if you're a student, if you're a serious student of the Bible, one of the things that you can do is you can take some time to rightly divide the word of truth. Notice the things that are alike and the things that are not alike, that are different. Notice the similarities of the Bible and notice the distinctions of the Bible. Every time the Bible says judgment, it's not talking about the same thing. Because there's a judgment that's called, for instance, the, the judgment seat of Christ. And the ones that go to the judgment seat of Christ are believers. And their sins are not judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Their works are judged. And the result of the judgment isn't that they go to hell. It's that they lose rewards or they gain rewards. That, that would be the Bema judgment. In other words, like when an Olympic athlete wins and he goes and stands on those stands, that's the kind of judgment we're talking about there, a reward judgment. But then the Bible also, Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, he talks about the judgment between the sheep and the goats. And it's obviously, it's obviously very Jewish in nature. And that's a different, there's different people at that judgment, different results of that judgment, different timing of that judgment. Different, uh, and, and, and by the way, one thing that you'll notice in all of the judgments of the Bible that's the same is it's always judgment based on works. This is the sheep and ghost judgment Jesus is talking about. It's a different judgment than the Bema judgment or the, or the judgment seat of Christ, which are the same thing. But now we have this in Revelation 20, this, this ominous great white throne judgment, which is happening at the end of the millennium. It's a different time. And it's very dire. It's very sobering. It's very serious. This is a, and, and if you're interested, if, if you, I've done a little work for you. If you look online after you go home and, and you have a beautiful meal and you've had your nap and you're ready to study again, you can go ahead and look online and you can see that I, I put together a, a document that shows the judgments and the resurrections, when they happen and what they're about, all in one place. Um, but that's something for you to study. But the, the thing that helps me a lot is to think of these three major judgments, the judgment seat of Christ, the sheep and goats judgment, the great white throne judgment. If you want to simplify it even more, just think about the judgment seat of Christ for believers, the great white throne judgment for all believers. This you want to know. You want to understand it. And now we're at that text of the scripture that's talking about God bringing this ultimate judgment and justice to earth through this. And listen to the language of it. Verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Sometimes you'll run into a person who's a heretic 
who's, a, who's not a, a sound, sound in, in their faith, and they will suggest to you that Jesus isn't God. Or they might even have the temerity to say that the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God. But one of the arguments for the deity of Christ, among so many, one of the arguments is just this simple. In the end, who is the judge? Jesus, the slain lamb, is the judge. He will judge the living and the dead. And it says here, the one seated on the throne, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And we literally have a time here where the earth itself is judged, refined by fire, and all of humankind here is gathered perhaps to observe or they're subjects of this great white throne judgment. And verse 12 says, and I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. You see that in the works. When the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, or the grave, if you will, the grave, the, the designation used in the Bible for departed unbelievers, sometimes also used for departed believers, like there's two sections in Hades, death and grave. So the sea... Those who were buried at sea or who were cremated in their ashes were poured into the sea. The sea gives up the dead. Death and hell give up the dead. What are we saying here? There's a resurrection for this judgment. All who had died apart from God, according to the Bible, will be resurrected to face God. Once to die, after that a judgment. Everybody faces Jesus the judge. Serious time, sobering time. And they're judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. There you are again. So where is Satan gone and the false prophet and the beast have all gone into the eternal lake of fire? And they're tormented day and night forever. And now here all rebels, all unbelievers that had so many opportunities and chose not to believe, they're judged according to their works. And they're cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, verse 14, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found, written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. How do you feel about this? Well, this shows how seriously we should be taking these things. You just can't read this realizing it's not a fantasy novel. This is... This is God's ultimate word about what's going to happen ultimately in heaven and earth. God is going to judge all, all evil, all rebellion in heaven and on earth, supernatural and natural. And this should, be at the, this should be pretty sobering for us. Now, you know how often we talk about what was the original intent of the author. That's an important question to ask about the Bible, really about any written literature like maybe the U.S. Constitution as an example. But the Bible for sure. Well, who, what did the original author mean by this? How did the original audience, how did this come off to the original audience? How, what, what's the aim of this? It's kind of obvious that the aim of the original author, John, though the original author of the Holy Spirit and the Apostle John, was to encourage a persecuted church that's under the boot of evil that it won't always be that way, that Satan and demons and evil men and women who oppress them will one day face God. And you think, well, if that doesn't seem like an important thing to you, 
then you haven't been hurt lately or had somebody you love hurt lately. It's not your little boy in the pool being called a filthy name and told that he can't swim with the other kids. It's not your grandson. If that's your grandson in the pool being told he can't drink whether people drink or swim, whether people swim, you would say, that's not just, that's not fair, that's not right. You hurt that little boy. I don't know about you. Here's my experience has been, I don't understand injustice until I taste a little of it myself. If you had said a few years ago, when women are abused, it's bad, I would have agreed with you. But when that abuse came home to our family, it has a deeper pain than I ever imagined it would have. When we experience that injustice, then you find yourself laying in bed at night going, God, when are you going to make that right? That's not right, God. Are you going to make that? I say it with reverence to God. Lord, you said you were going to make everything right. Are you going to make that right? When are you going to make that right? How are you going to make that right? I can only imagine a person that's been harmed in a terrible way. And they would say, well, God, you're, you know, you're powerful and you're good. When are you going to make that right? And God says, I wrote a book. I want you to take it in hand and read it all the way to the end. And what you will see is, I have a greater passion for justice than any human being or all human beings put together. God has a passion for justice. And maybe that's something we ought to think about a little bit because we haven't been hurt like the black man if we're not black. We haven't been hurt like an abused woman if we're not an abused woman. We haven't been hurt like somebody that's locked in like poverty in the world, like there's poverty in, in the States, but poverty around the world like you and I have never experienced. People that have to hike, the mother has to hike for miles and miles and miles just to get it water that when she brings it home, it's going to make her kids sick. Did you ever have to go a long way and not be able to find water? I don't know if anybody in the room ever had that experience. Cl clean, fresh drinking water is everywhere I, I want it. So there's injustice in the world, and yet... So, the, so, so one of the effects of this truth on the original audience would be, it would be thrilling to them. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you're going to bring justice to the earth, that finally things are going to be fair and just and right, that it's thrilling to think about. It should be thrilling. This, this is how we should feel. In one sense, we should feel we have been swept into the victory of Jesus. He's an overcomer. Nike, we're overcomers. Because Jesus defeats evil, we can overcome evil. Because Jesus rules, we can overcome to rule. Because Jesus judges, you should be able to overcome and live with keen discernment. So it's thrilling. It should be thrilling. But it, you can't read this without it also being chilling sobering, frightening. I, I once, we had, my son mowed the lawn for an elderly lady in the church, not a church you know anything about. And um, she was um, just what you would expect a nice Christian lady to be outwardly. Except she didn't know how to use her answering machine well. 
So she would call the house to, to get Chuck to come and mow her lawn and then fail to hang up. And then it would record what she said. And she cussed like a sailor. Now, the sin I'm talking to you about is not her cussing. It's us listening to it over and over and over again and laughing. Like, why are you laughing? You're no better than I am. You're the same. It's like, because we have, like, and we have to give an answer for every idle word and for how many times we listen to the lady say the bad words. Uh, it's pretty serious when you really think about, though, what if we did rewind the tape of our life and start going over our dating relationships and our motives and our handling of money and our truth-telling or not truth-telling? And would we not all have a well-populated hall of shame? Are you ready to face God and answer for all the things you've done or not done, said or not said? Are you eager for that? Oh, I don't need any help. I'll just go ahead to the great throne room of God and stand before the great judge of the universe and I'll, I'll give an answer for all those things. You ready to do that? How badly do you want justice? I know what you're thinking, justice for other people, mercy for me. So there is, it is chilling. There's an old Southern Baptist preacher, Beverly the Lord, he was from Kentucky. He had a famous sermon. His name was R.G. Lee and he had a famous sermon called, anybody know? Payday someday. It's full of poetry. He starts out with a gravelly throat and he says, Ahab was a vile toad squatting on the throne of Israel. Well, I thought I wish I could come up with stuff like that. Ahab was a vile toad squatting on the throne of Israel. He talks in the sermon about Ahab and Jezebel. Remember the story? And how they coveted the vineyard and he wanted it and he pouted because he couldn't have Naboth's vineyard. And Jezebel comes along and says, you're the king. If you want it, just take it. Kill the guy and take the vineyard. He takes the vineyard. Then the prophet of God says to him, someday you're going to pay for that. R.G. Lee says there's going to be a payday someday. And over and over again in that old sermon, he would say there's a payday coming someday. God is going to make all wrongs right. He's going to, we have to pay for all the wrong works, all the sins of commission, all the sins of omission, all the word, all every idle word, or the Bible isn't true. That's why John MacArthur, when he's writing about this passage, he said, this, this, this passage describes the final sentencing of the lost, and it's the most serious and sobering and tragic passage in the entire Bible, commonly known as the Great White Throne. It's the last courtroom scene that will ever take place. The accused, all the unsaved you have, who have ever lived, will be resurrected to experience a trial like no other. There will be no debate over guilt or innocence. There'll be a prosecutor, but there'll be no defender. There'll be an accuser, but there'll be no advocate. There'll be an indictment, but there will be no defense mounted by the accused. The convicting evidence will be presented with no rebuttal and no cross-examination. You don't want to be at this judgment, and you don't have to be. When we read this passage, we want to look away. It's like a really bad, gory wreck. Are you like me? This is like, oh, this is a sad, hard passage to read. 
But it is the severe mercy that God has given it to us in clear and unvarnished terms. This is truth from God. And so when we read it, I, I've thought of five things that we should that that should occur to us as we read this. One, God's holiness is greater than we think. God's holiness is greater than we think. When you look at this great white throne judgment, holiness was a, was a serious matter. Second, our sinfulness is deeper than we think. Sin is it's worse than we think. Third, God's mercy is higher and God's mercy is wider than we think. If God would be willing to put together a, a scheme, if God would be willing to put together a, a better way to say it would be like the old expositor said, an unfolding drama of redemption, that God would unfold a drama of redemption, a way that guilty people could find mercy. How beautiful would that be? In, in Psalm 103, this is one of the ways it's put into poetry. He for, in Psalm 103, verse 3, he forgives your iniquity. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love, and he offers you his mercy. The Lord, he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I know you're sitting there really quiet today, but everything inside you is saying hallelujah. Hallelujah. I know that's what you're really thinking. You, that's what you're thinking. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Do you see the cross in that? I always see the cross in that. As high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west, there in the center, Christ, dying on the cross, makes it possible for us to avoid God's great white throne and be folded into his mercy, even though we're every bit as guilty as anyone else. As far as the east is from the west, so far will he remove our transgressions from us as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. When you look at the great white throne, you see that God's holiness is greater than you thought. And God, our sinfulness is deeper than we thought. And God's mercy is higher and wider than we thought. And God's grace is richer than we thought. But time and opportunity are limited. There's only so much time that we have. So there's another thought I want you to, I want to leave you with the fourth. And that is, what side of justice will you be on? You're like I am. You have a, a beating human heart that craves justice. When you're mistreated or when somebody that you love is mistreated, it fires you up. You have a sense of justice. You have a passion for fairness. That's not right. He was safe. He was safe. He got the first down. He got, I, he got the first. You're going to talk about it at the coffee shop for six months. He got that first down. Those guys were on the take. They paid the refs. It's not fair. Oh, yeah, if you were married to him, 
you'd have probably shot him too. You know, thoughts like that. We crave justice. What's interesting to me is, you know, I didn't write the Bible, and in my weak, silly, sinful humanness, I might have messed it up and not put so much judgment and justice in it. You've been with me for these last number of weeks, and you notice that in the, that the part that I talked about from Revelation 6 through 19, I didn't talk about the literary features of it today. Let me talk about that briefly. How was how that laid out in literature? How did they lay that, that out? It's 21 judgments. It's judgment, 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 judgment. Seals broken and judgments come on the earth. Trumpets sound and judgments come on the earth. Bulls are poured out and judgment come. Then Jesus brings judgment to the earth. And all the while he keeps sending messengers of mercy and pleading with people to repent and even stimulating their repentance through pain. And yet they still stubbornly say, no, I will not follow him. I will not yield to him. I will not allow him to be my Lord. And now finally thrown in a lake of fire from which there is no recovery. We all crave justice. We all demand justice. Unless we see ourselves as guilty, then we plead for mercy. But God loves mercy even more than we love mercy. And God involved his own son, Jesus. And that is why we sing about Jesus every Sunday. That's why we have communion and our hands tremble. That's why when we're driving along in our truck through the night and the scenes from the past come back to our heart and we're grieved about the things that we've done that nobody knows about, we go, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God that Jesus has forgiven me even when I didn't deserve it, that I don't have the justice of God falling on me. You have a choice. The justice of God can fall on you for your sin or the justice of God can fall on Jesus for your sin. You want to make sure you're on the right side of justice. And you want to make sure that everybody you love is on the right side of justice. And you want to make sure that you use your gifts and your gifting and your energy to do something about getting people on the right side of justice. You're certainly not just putting together your little kingdom of comfort, are you, in this world? This is a race to, this is, our time is limited. This is a race to see how many people we can help get on the right side of justice. And if you are frustrated about justice in like racial justice or, or criminal justice or uh, economic justice, you should be. Christians should be more than anybody. And we should work towards those things. That should be part of the good works that we embed the gospel in. While at the same time, we recognize that ultimately justice is only going to come when Jesus brings it. And the only way for a person to experience the justice their human heart craves for, craves, is through Christ. That's why we are so thrilled about the gospel. Think how guilty you are. Think how guilty you are. And think that you can live and die under the mercy of God. Let me clarify this as I conclude, by showing you the passage again. Can I, can I show you the sweet spot of Revelation 20? Listen to verse 6, right in the heart of this. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second resurrection is to judgment and death. The first resurrection is resurrection to, to enjoy life. 
Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. My mom and dad, they taught me to witness to my friends. They, they taught me to use John 3.16. They, they always said, just say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, go to hell, but have everlasting life. And my parents always said, have them put their name in that verse. Did your parents tell you that? For God so loved Kenny that he gave his only begotten son. Can I ask you an important question today? Are you under God's mercy or are you under God's wrath? Have you ever said, Jesus, I am so guilty. I am so sorry. I believe, I want to believe, I do believe that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he took all, all my sin. I, God, I want your justice to fall on your son on my behalf. Because you could, in your heart, believe at this moment and pass from death into life. And wouldn't that be... Wouldn't that be a motivation for those of us who already are under the mercy? We know that we're under the mercy to think, who am I, who do I live nearby? Who do I know that I could explain this story to, that I could tell this story to? It's that simple. Who do I know I could love toward Jesus? How could I, who's in my life already that God is at work in their life and they need the mercy of God because they're under the justice of God and they this would be, now you have a reason to live, don't you? What Christian doesn't have a reason to live? When you live in the middle, you know, it's a, a target-rich environment, if you don't mind a, an awkward metaphor. It's a target-rich environment. It's like they're everywhere. Sinners everywhere. Guilty people everywhere. People that are going to hell everywhere around us. Hell is real. I thank God for uh, these Baptist guys that found this young guy years ago who was confused about this, my dad, and they just got into his business and they started doing what irritating Baptist people do, you know, just kind of preaching at him and telling him he needs to be born again and saved and such. And that's what dad needed. Some people probably need a Lutheran approach, you know, but dad needed a Baptist approach. He just needed somebody to get up in his face. You do what the Spirit guides you to do, but who's in your life? that has ultimate questions that God has put in your life, maybe they're really depressed and they need to find their way out of that. Or maybe they're really been hurt and they need to find their, or maybe they really feel guilty and they need to find their way out of that. When my brother-in-law, Bob Dunbar died, he died kind of young. He was younger when he died than I am right now. And there were a thousand people at his funeral. I've mentioned it before. Bobby was so generous. He was such a good guy. He was a friend to me. He loved, he loved to take me out for coffee in bookstores and stuff like that we'd do together. Talk. He, but he, he had this thing, and, and I probably told you, he always was the one to buy, always. Now, he knew he always made more money than me, but, but still, you know, I would say, hey, I would say, here, let me know, let me, and he would, he would always, he had this thing, he would always go, no, Ken, listen, I got this. I got it. Please. Please, he would say that. And it was so common for him to do that, that in our family, if you did that, if you said, please, please, they would go, oh, Uncle Bobby, Uncle Bobby. And I thought, well, it was just me. But when people started giving testimonies at the funeral, they were all giving testimonies, like, and he would never let you buy. 
Remember how he would do? Please, I got this, please. And as I left my pew after I heard these eulogies and I walked up to give the gospel to a thousand people, it hit me to tell the people, Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived the life that you and I could not live. And then when we said, I got this, he said, oh no, I got this, please. And all we do is go, okay. How wonderful is that? I want to leave, hallelujah. I want to leave you, we want to leave you with a blessing. We've asked Mark Havistel, one of our elders, to come and just bless you. So I'd like to ask you to just stand to your feet while Mark prays a prayer, a blessing over you. Mark.